Okay, we're right to go. This morning we're going to be reading from the book of Romans. Now we're in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Before we read, let's, uh, let's uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer, shall we? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious words, dear Lord. We thank you, dear Father, that your words were given to us, dear Lord, that we may have life and that we may have it indeed to the full. You came, dear Lord, to save us, dear Father, to save us from our sins, to save us from an eternity apart from you. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you will enlighten our minds this morning, that you will give us clarity with the scriptures, and that the word of God, as simple as it's written, dear Father, would truly illuminate our hearts. And we ask you, dear Lord, that your spirit would superintend over this service this morning, and indeed... Dear Father, open our eyes to the wonderful truth of your word. Be with me, dear Lord, and guide me through it. Calm my nerves, dear Father, as you do. We praise you, dear Father, for your wonderful work in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Romans chapter 4, we'll uh, read from verse 1 to, to verse 12. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness." Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision? Or in uncircumcision, not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. I've really enjoyed going through Romans. I, I, I don't know who gets the better blessing, you know, preaching it and studying for it and, and writing it and going through it and then trying to, trying to bring everything into a nice compact form and so much that you learn going through it or you guys when you listen to what I have left over. <laughs> I think I get the better blessing. Romans, what we've got going through, is the gospel. It's the gospel clearly presented and explained. Every area of the gospel is put together in such a good legal format that Paul gives us. And it's in, done in a way that we really don't have an excuse to be able to not understand what the gospel is. 
not only about our salvation, not only how we receive salvation, but how it's kept. All of that's presented in the book of Romans and presented so clearly. We started with Romans chapter 1, obviously, and and it talks about the depravity of man and how man completely fell and and his his total state. Romans chapter 2 speaks about the Gentiles and how they... They don't have a position with, with God and, and neither do the Jews. Now we're finishing off or we're starting again where chapter 3 finished off. When Paul's dealing with this, we're only going to be dealing with one verse today. So we're not going to be going through the whole lot, but just one verse. We're going to be looking at Romans 4 verse 3. And it simply says, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That verse I'm actually going to be using as the outline itself. The first part is for what saith the scripture. The second part is Abraham believed God. The third part, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So when we clarify the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in scripture, what you're finding here is that Paul is dealing with a specific heresy. What I love about the Word of God is there should be no excuse for error in the world with respect to Christianity and respect to what the Bible teaches. Every heresy, in one form or another, is already explained in Scripture. It's already actually dealt with in Scripture. But the one lie, the one lie that's dealt with more than any other is the idea that we attain salvation, that we can attain heaven by our own work. By our own efforts. That it's our efforts that saves us. And there's a whole bunch of different variations of that. That we, that we meet partly with Christ. Okay, So Jesus started it and then we're there to finish it. Okay, That's one. That's taught by the Roman Catholic Church. So Jesus did this much and then we've got to make sure that we keep our stuff up in order that we might be able to gain heaven. Okay, Or there's those parts that... God, yeah, yeah, he saved us and he covered all our sins up until the time we accepted him, but now it's up to us. Okay? This is so pervasive in the world that every false religion believes that we only attain paradise and heaven by the work that we do. Everyone. Whether you're talking about Islam, whether you're talking about, um, um, about any of the pagan religions, how they have to placate their gods in order to receive some sort of a benefit, um, even getting to the point where it's purgatory, that we have to even burn away our own sins and everything like that until we actually attain heaven. But he says here in Romans 4.4, 4, he says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you're working for your salvation, then technically God is indebted to you. God is indebted to you. There's not too many men that work that don't expect to receive wages. So if the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Another verse that he has is in the same chapter, in verse 14, he says, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. We'll deal with this a little bit more next time, but just, just so you can understand this, the promise of God has made, was made to keep the promise God has made 
to keep you loses its effectual purpose in your life is salvation, if salvation is retained by works. If salvation is somehow retained, kept by what you do, then it says here the promise is made of none effect. The promise doesn't have an effect. Again, we're not going to deal too much about the idea of losing salvation here. We're going to be leaving that until the next message because it's not perfectly dealt with here, but I want you to understand that the belief that you can lose your salvation and the belief that you need to work to attain salvation are two sides of the same coin. Okay, You can't have one without the other. Ultimately, the Bible refers to that as a works-based salvation. Okay, By whatever means you are justified, that's how you're going to be kept. Now, I want you to try and stay with me this morning. I don't have a lot of illustrations because it's a really difficult one to actually illustrate. But there's a, there's a lot of statements that I'm going to be making here that I need you, your mind to be really attuned and, and working to understand what's being saying. Whatever means you are justified, you are kept. If you're justified by faith, then you are kept by promise. If you are justified by works, then you keep yourself by maintaining your works. Does that make sense? Okay. One form secures salvation. The other cannot secure it. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Because Paul was dealing with this in one particular form in Galatians. Galatians is the one book that you cannot use to justify anybody losing their salvation. Why? Because it's the very book that was written to address the error. Okay? It was the very book that was written to address the error. Have a look what it says in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? What's Paul dealing with here? He's dealing with exactly that. He's dealing with now what's happening with the Galatians is they're going back to the law in order to retain that which was given them. And he's trying to address this error and he goes into it in such clear format in the book of Galatians. So can you see this? There's only two positions for salvation, right? And the same options apply for preservation. Okay? So whatever it is that saves you, is what has to be used to preserve you. Okay? That which God was, has wrought, that which God has wrought, He preserves. He preserves. But if salvation is, and salvation is His work alone, you understand, it's all His work, therefore it can't be lost. But if the beginning of eternal life has anything to do with man, then its retention is also by man. Okay, The retention of salvation is also by man. If man has anything to do with it, then he needs to make sure he keeps it. And that's the fundamental problem that we have. The problem that we have is that we're thinking about working for our salvation, then we need to keep it that way. 
Saved by grace, through faith, kept by promise. Romans 4.14 For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Saved by works, kept by effort. Romans 11.6 says, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. This, I honestly consider to be the most addressed heresy in the Bible. Not only the potential for losing one's salvation, but also that we can gain it by our own effort, by the work that we do. Does it have consequences? Yes, of course it has consequences. Are they the consequences that you think? No, no. They're not actually the consequences that you think. A lot of people think that you then go on to licentiousness. That is not, they don't understand the spirit of God that works in a born-again believer's life after they're saved. Okay, so the first part of the message. For what saith the scripture? This is an argument whose foundation is the word of God. It's the natural place where Paul goes to defend the doctrine. Isn't it amazing? He, he goes to the scripture to, de- to defend the doctrine. He brings the argument out of the Bible to defend it. He doesn't go on his emotion. He doesn't go on, his, on, his, on public opinion, the general acceptance of the assembly. Okay? He doesn't go on, um, on, on feelings or anything like that. It's not about feeling saved. Okay? It's not about your mind. It's about what the Bible says with respect to your salvation. Now, to a lot of you, this is, this is arbitrary. You, you already know this. You know that you're, you're saved by faith, not by works. Some maybe think that they need to be kept by the work that they do. And, you know, I can understand that because sin has a tendency of doing that to us, doesn't it? We sin and we're like, Lord, how, how can I be saved? How can I be saved when I do this or this or this? Okay, fair questions to ask, but you need to first establish whether or not you are born again and whether you are saved. See, Paul goes to the scripture. That's exactly what our Lord Jesus does. He does exactly the same thing. He always goes to the word of God. In Luke 16, he says that if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The scripture has its foundation. The arguments come from scripture. Paul knows also that it's going to be the very word of God that is going to be holding all men accountable. And Jesus knew that as well. He simply said this. He said, he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Clearly then, if you're going to be presenting a doctrine or a teaching which you claim to receive from the Bible... It stands to reason that the Bible needs to be the foundation from which you draw your arguments. All arguments will stand or fall based on the foundation from which they're drawn. A building can only stand for as long as its foundation supports it. Does that make sense? So if a building can only stand for as long as its foundation supports it, then if we're going to be drawing a teaching out of Scripture then it's the scripture that we need to use to present our argument. The scripture becomes our foundation. And the Bible says if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we have that today. 
This is the reason I argue so often for upholding God's word and the promise of his preservation of his word. I don't, I don't argue those points just to get little ideas across. I argue those points because if you don't have a foundation in the word of God, if you're going to look at the word and you're going to question a single word in it, then you've lost your foundation. If we start doubting the scriptures themselves, what are we going to use to argue with now? How can I use, to, use the Bible to argue something? And what do we see happening in the world today? What do we see happening in modern Christianity today? They've all doubted God's words. They're all doubting God's words. With over 400 English translations since the King James Bible, you can understand that Satan has done a masterful job in hiding the word of God in obscurity. If God has promised to preserve his words, then they must be preserved. If they're not preserved, how's your salvation preserved? That's really interesting. You know the very first question in the Bible? Hath God said? Creating doubt in the words of God. Who was it asked by? It was asked by Satan. It was the very words, first words that came out of his mouth. Would have caused doubt in the word of God. Questioning the word of God. Someone said something really interesting once. They said, you ever wondered why a question mark looks like a snake with an eye at the end of it? You know, oh, that was really funny, actually. That was, that was really good. So this is what we have. This is the apostasy of the last days. For what saith the scripture? The second part of this, of this point is that, that it's an argument whose foundation is from ancient times. You know, we thought that salvation by faith and faith alone is a New Testament teaching, you know. Back then, they had to do it by works. Back then, they had to, they had to kill bulls and, and goats and they had to slay this and they had to slay that and then, and then they're saved that way, all right. But Paul is actually drawing his foundation for salvation by faith and faith alone. How far back? All the way to Abraham. He's speaking about it all the way to Abraham. He's bringing the teaching out of the Old Testament. We so often hold these two, these two segments of the Bible apart. The Old Testament and the New Testament supersede the Old One. Right? It's almost the same as what it is in Islam. In Islam, you have that which was written in Mecca and that which was written in Medina. And one supersedes the other. They call it abrogation. Really interesting word. That's why it contradicts itself all the time. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Because this is an interesting point that you need to understand. If Paul is drawing his teaching out of the Old Testament, when he taught, how was it received? In fact, brethren, when anybody that's standing up here with a microphone is teaching, how should it be received? Are, are you the sort of people that because you're so used to going home and watching television and you take your brains out and you sit it on top of the telly, are you the sort of people that just believe everything that comes out of that box and then you come to church and actually think exactly the same thing? I'm not here to inform you. I'm here to entertain you so we can have fun. Then we can all go home and say, wow, wasn't that a great message today? I really enjoyed it. Well, I don't really care to make you enjoy the message. My heart's desire is that you will leave here a different person from when you came in. An understanding of something that's changed, perhaps, or confirmed. Paul did this. Have a look at 17, chapter 17, verse 11. He's speaking of the Bereans here. 
And he basically said that these Bereans, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. He called the Bereans noble for testing his teachings by holding it up against the Old Testament. What Bible did they have? They only had the Old Testament at that time. The Gospels were starting to come through, no question. The the Gospels were starting to already circulate, yes they were. But these Bereans were holding Paul accountable to the Old Testament. This has a number of applications for us today. The first one is all pastors, preachers, teachers have something to be held accountable to. Have something to be held accountable to. Now, I don't know about you, that excites me no end. And it sounds really strange. But, you see, if I'm held accountable to something that never changes, that is real and that is true, if that's my desire to be held accountable to that, if I get proven in an error and they can show it out of Scripture, all of a sudden I've discovered something that I need to repent for, Okay, and then now my teaching starts again. So I have a foundation there. But if, but if I'm going to be held accountable based on the public opinion and the, and the personal opinion of individuals within an assembly, we've got another problem, haven't we? Because I can't placate everybody. The pastor that's here can't make everybody happy. All right, So people are going to be upset. I don't like it when you talked about this, and I don't like it when you talked about this. Okay, can you show me in the scripture where... I'm not to be teaching about this. You know, the word of God becomes my authority and I tell you, that to me is exciting. I I still can't understand why a a minister could stand here and not have an every word Bible and what's he held accountable to? So, pastors, preachers, teachers have something to be held accountable to. The second point of this is it is right to test all teaching, not only of the Bible, but any worldview ideas against the Bible. Okay, it's the second point. The third point is the noble ones are those who know their Bible. Noble ones are those who know their Bible. You're not going to be able to hold anybody accountable to that which you don't know. Okay, the Bible is our constitution. It's an, our, our ultimate constitution. That's where we have everything with respect to life and godliness and living the world and and the ideas that come through it. But here he says salvation by grace through faith is not new. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says this, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Logical sense. Because the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. That's the New Testament teaching. What did it say in the Old? Psalm 51.16. David, King David, praying, says to the Lord, For thou desirest not sacrifice else will I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what the Lord wants. 
He wants a softened heart. He wants a broken spirit. He wants a person that is stopped thinking that the world revolves around them. They've hardened their heart to the word of God, to the truth of the scriptures. But that's not what the Lord wants. He wants a broken heart and a contrite spirit. right? One that believes God. The second point of the message. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. He believed that God could do what man could not do. If you still got your finger in Romans chapter 4, turn back there and have a look at verses 18 to 21. Abraham believed God. First understand that in order to believe someone, you need to be communicated to. Does that make sense? And in order to believe them, then that communication has to be clear. God has communicated to Abraham. The word of God came to Abraham and he believed God. It says in verse 18, he says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Specifically, what is this referring to? What's this referring to? That, that, he, was, that he was declared righteous. For the scripture saith, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Book right at the beginning. Chapter 15. We'll have a look at where this comes from so you can see the context of it. Abraham believed God. So we're in Genesis. So that's, that's before the Hebrew nation even began. Okay, before the Jewish people even, well, they all came from Abraham. So this is right from Abraham, right at the beginning. Verse, in chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, have a look. It says, After these things the word of the Lord came to unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. The text we have in Romans chapter 4 says, And being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Brethren, how, how, how explicitly, how, how perfectly did Abraham actually believe God? How perfectly did he believe? Did, did he have a, oh yeah, alright, cool, good, going to have a kid. Don't know how that's going to happen. I'm 100. She's not quite 100. And you know, we don't function the way we used to function. So, yeah, all right, then fine, whatever. How explicitly did he really believe God? Turn to Genesis chapter 22. Still in Genesis, turn over to chapter 22. 
You have to see this. It's just such a beautiful picture of this faith of Abraham and this man. And, and, and if, we, if we believe God, if we believe God's words, we're not going to sit there trying to question it in our minds. We're not going to sit there trying to reconcile it. God either said or he didn't say. God either promised or he didn't promise. It's one or the other. It's not both. Okay? And this is what Abraham's dealt with here. In verse 1, he says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. That word tempt is also used together with the word try. Tempt and try. And you'll see that. You'll see that in a minute. God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thine son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Oh, well, what's happening here? What's happening here? Offer as a burnt offering? He's going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. How does, how does Abraham reconcile this with God's promise? Does he say, does he say oh, the, the word of God has now contradicted itself? What do I do with this contradiction? Does he, does he think that God's changed his mind? Does he think that God's lied to him all this time? I mean, keep in mind, this is chapter 22. God's only, only just recently confirmed it to him in chapter 17 and chapter 21. So he said it in chapter 15. He initiated it there. Chapter 17, he confirms it. Chapter 21. And a chapter before, he speaks about Isaac. You know? Didn't he say that? That in Isaac shall thy seed be called. What's he doing? Now God's telling him to kill the same son as a sacrifice. Uh, there has to be an answer to this conundrum. What do we do with this? How did Abraham deal with this? Did he say, no way, God. You know, you said, you said that, and, and it can't happen if you're going to make me kill him. Fair enough, that's how I would think. Well, how did Abraham deal with this? Did he know that God was speaking to him? Did he know the word of the Lord? Have a look in verse 3. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took, his two, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for a burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Well, so fully did Abraham believe God that he basically got up straight away. First thing in the morning, saddled his ass, got all the wood for a burnt offering, got his son, got his servants and off they went. There's no hint of hesitation here. I would hesitate, I've got to admit. My son can annoy me at times, there's no question. But nevertheless, to offer him as a burnt offering. And he's bigger than me now, which makes it a bit harder. But Abraham was a hundred, you know. And his son wasn't wasn't this big. His son was was fairly mature at this age, at this stage. How did he deal with this? We've got a hint of it in the next two verses, how, what was going through Abraham's mind. Verse 4, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Well, would they both come again? He's going to be offering him up as a burnt offering. How are they going to both come again? And even, think of it, even when Isaac asked the most important question, how did Abraham deal with it? I mean, it's a logical question. He asked the question here, verse 6, have a look. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And they both, and they, 
And they went, both of them, together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And we know the end of this story. We know how that finishes. You know, Abraham believed God to the point that if the entire nation that numbers more than the stars of heaven were going to come from his son, then something miraculous was going to be done here. Something, And he hadn't experienced anything miraculous. We've, 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 we've seen answers to prayer that have been pretty miraculous. We've seen people come to the Lord which we never expected to come to the Lord. We've seen people healed that we've never expected to see healed. The very fact that someone is saved, that someone's eternity is changed, is a miracle. And, and what's Abraham experienced? We don't really know at this stage. You know, he was promised this child that was going to come directly from his loins and you know, they shortcutted it by going through the bondservant and they had Ishmael. But that's the son of the flesh, not the son of the promise. This is the son of the promise. Now he's going to kill him. You know, Abraham actually believed God to the point that if a nation is going to come from Isaac, I'll kill him. That's God's business now. He's going to have to resurrect him. He's going to have to resurrect him. Think I'm making that up? I'm not making that up. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Turn there. Please turn there. You need to see it for yourself. Because it gives you an insight into what Abraham was actually thinking. This is the extent that Abraham believed God's words. And this is a, an example of how we should be holding to God's words. We don't go outside and try and think of things in our frame of reference because God's thoughts are much higher than our thoughts and his ways much higher than our ways. Verse 17, chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham... When he was tried, there's that word, and we say tempt before, and it's used interchangeably with tried. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Application. How do we apply this to us? How do we apply this to our lives now? There's so many things in the Bible that we find very difficult to reconcile. We don't understand how belief in God can save our souls. You know, we don't really understand that. We don't understand how that works. We don't understand why God would preserve us even though we still struggle with sin. We don't understand how God's own righteousness is imputed to us. His own righteousness is given to us. We don't understand how that works. We don't understand how God is 100% sovereign and in control of everything, including our salvation, and yet man is 100% accountable. How does that work? If God is 100% in control, how is it that the Bible also teaches that I'm 100% accountable? We don't understand it from our frame of reference because we are limited. We are limited. We don't understand the Trinity. Tell me a single person that understands the Trinity. Tell me a single person that's been able to draw a graphic and say, this is a picture of the Trinity. 
No one can explain the Trinity. You can't explain the Trinity. You know? We don't understand how Jesus can be both 100% man and 100% God. We don't understand the hypostatic union. We don't understand it. How is that possible? We don't even understand how God preserves his word in the midst of so many distortions. We don't understand that. But we're called to believe him. We're called to believe him before ever doubting his words or twisting them to fit our own feeble minds. We're called to believe God and is accounted unto us for righteousness. A number of years ago I said something that I quoted from somebody else and I said, a God that is small enough for our minds cannot be big enough for our needs. Cannot be big enough for our needs. He's not going to fit in our frame of reference. We're talking about the creator of the universe. Abraham believed that God could do what man cannot. He believed that God would give him a child even though his own body was now dead and Sarah, her own womb was now dead. Abraham believed God could do what man could not in potentially raising his son if he slew him in order to fulfil his promises. Jesus made an interesting comment, which we find actually recorded in three different Gospels. I'm just going to quote the one from the Gospel of Luke. He said, For it is easier for a camel to go through, the eye, through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot save himself. Man can't reconcile himself to God. He can't meet God halfway. Man is dead in trespasses and sins. The fifth verse in our passage in Romans says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. What's confirmed in the Bible is that man believes God to the saving of his own soul. Man believes God to the saving of his own soul. The last point. Third part of that verse that we were looking at, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Counted, reckoned unto him for righteousness. I use reckoned because the Bible also uses reckoned in exactly the same passage. Okay, so counted and reckoned. They are two words that are used interchangeably with respect to this. What do they mean? Counted is and reckoned, they're both pretty much accounting terms. That after all the evidence that we see, in the end is the summation of it. Okay? The, all the evidence that we have from Abraham is that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's everything that says there. In verse 9, it actually says that. It says, For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Faith, believing God, is all the evidence that is reckoned, accounted together, to determine a man as righteous. You know, I tried coming up with an illustration for this and I, I, I couldn't come up with an illustration. You know. But I want you to consider what's happened here. The passage claims that the very righteousness of God was given to Abraham simply because he believed God. The very righteousness of God was given to Abraham simply because he believed. You 
Does it escape your attention that something significant has been done here from something that seems relatively insignificant? I mean, we speak about that. You know, you're saved by faith, saved by what you believe. In verse 9, he says, Cometh this blessedness, because this didn't, didn't just apply to Abraham, it, it applies to everybody. And he says that in verse 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? Well, we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How is it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision, in other words, when he was following the law in circumcision, or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision, because he received this before he got, before he got circumcised. Verse 15 of um, chapter 15 of, of Genesis. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that, the right, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Mate, I can't, get the, I can't get it across my head that God's righteousness has been given to me just because I've believed him. The point is that faith saves all who believe. Salvation can come to all people of the earth who would simply believe God and be counted righteous. But to many, this simple act is a stumbling block. To a lot of people, this simple act is a stumbling block. Though simple, the way of salvation is made most difficult. And difficult by nothing other than its simplicity. Do you understand that? It's made difficult just because it's so simple. We think we've got to do something great. We think we've got to do something amazing in order to get salvation. We think we've got to run churches and, and make sure we're doing everything right and, and, and we've got a whole list of stuff that we've got to do to be saved and we're ticking off all the boxes. We get to church on time, we sing hymns, we play the piano, we, we do the announcements, we, we preach and, 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 and if we do all of that stuff right, then we're going to be saved. You know, We think that we need to work for our salvation. We need to tick every single box. Believe. And you'll be made righteous. Believe. And the righteousness of God is going to be given to you in full measure. But no, we think we're like Naaman. Remember Naaman? Remember Naaman was the one that had all the leprosy. And then he goes to Elisha. And Elisha says, yeah, go and dip yourself in the Jordan a few times and you're going to be clean. What? I dip myself in the Jordan and I'm going to be clean. Well, his own servant actually chastised him. He actually explained his own thoughts to him. He says, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather when he saith to thee, wash and be clean? Friend, do you expect to do some great thing in order to inherit eternal life? How much rather than when you can believe and be saved? I'm debating a person about this and, and she said, I don't believe that a 30 second prayer is going to get you saved. You know? She's right. A 30 second prayer ain't going to get you saved. But the very simplicity of the gospel and what it is has now been made a stumbling block for her. All of a sudden the way of salvation has been made very difficult. Hasn't it? Just by its simplicity. Just by its simplicity. Why is it that believing God will mean that he will no longer impute sin to him? 
Why does believing Jesus' own words that if we were to believe on him, we would have eternal life? And Paul claims Christ's own righteousness is literally given to those who believe. Why by faith? Why is it by faith? Jesus Christ is the promised redeemer of the world. Believing that God has made a way that man may have salvation through his death, setting aside sin through his burial, and justification through his resurrection, is all achieved together by believing God at his word by faith. Why by faith? Have you ever asked that question? I've asked that question. I actually put a sticker on the back of my Bible once. It stood up like a tab, right? So I had my Bible there. Because I couldn't understand this. Why by faith? Why by faith? So I had my little sticker up there and it was why by faith. I put it right at the beginning of the Bible and I thought, mate, I'm going to read this book cover to cover until I find out the answer why by faith. You know? To be perfectly honest, I didn't get past the third chapter of Genesis. And I understood why by faith. But rather than looking at my sort of funny way of looking at it, which I'll explain to you in a minute, I want you to have a look at what the Bible says. Why by faith? And it answers it specifically. You're in chapter, which of Romans? Chapter 4. Stay in chapter 4. But go to verse 13. Go to verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul says this. He says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is... There is no transgression. Therefore, it is, by, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only of which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The reason God has given in this passage, why by faith? Is that if it's by faith, then the promise might be sure. That the promise might be sure. God wants mankind saved. But mankind cannot save himself. If it was ever to be up to man to save himself, then he couldn't be sure. It could never be sure. Salvation cannot be sure. The only way man could be assured of salvation and eternal life is if he believed the promise of God. And if by promise then he is assured eternal life. But if it's by works, no man can be assured of life. Why? Because if works can save him, works can damn him. Remember I mentioned that the notion of works-based salvation is, and its retention is the most addressed heresy in the Bible. It's the most addressed heresy in the Bible. It had to be by faith. If it's not by faith, then it can't be kept. It can't, be, it can't be kept at all by God if we don't do it by faith. Again, this was addressed, remember, in Scripture? Acts chapter 15. Now, I have to turn there, but listen, listen carefully. Listen carefully. This is the first 
counsel that we find in Scripture. And do you know why it was set? Do you know why it was all put together? It was all put together because certain Jews believed that you now needed to keep the law. You now needed to keep the law of Moses in order to stay saved. Do you hear what I said? You need to now keep the law of Moses in order to stay saved. So they had this meeting together. And have a look what it says there in, in verse 5, in chapter 15, verse 5 says, But there arose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And then there, and when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, Ye know how that a good while ago God made a choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a, put a yoke Upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Even as they, we shall be saved. Even as they, we the Jews who have had the yoke of the law shall be saved. Even as they, if we believe by faith. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is, the, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Mark 16 simply says, He, and he said unto them, this is Jesus, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Brethren, the last point. Adam fell because he chose to reject God's words. Rather than believe God, he chose to reject God's words. Does it stand reasonable then to you that if the entire universe changed and altered simply because man rejected the word of God, that all of mankind should be saved if he accepted the word of God? If unbelief caused the fall of man, is it not reasonable that faith would save man? Isn't that reasonable? I see that as reasonable. That's why I couldn't get past the third chapter and the answer just threw out to me. I saw it in the very third chapter of the book of Genesis, why it is by faith. You've read it now in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Turn there. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Brethren, if the rejection of God's words led to death, should we not consider the, the acceptance of them would lead to life? Romans chapter 5, verses 17 to 19. Says, for if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. 
For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Brethren, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we be saved. We're saved by faith, not of works. We're kept in trusting the promise of God, not by what we do. We're preserved, we're saved, and we should be living a life now, not only a life of joy knowing our eternity, we should be living a life now willing to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the world. Nothing is going to keep you from the love of God. And you know, it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop here. We're only halfway through the fourth chapter of Romans. You know, all of Romans deals with this. How are you now going to live your life understanding and knowing that not only are you saved by faith, but you are now to live by it. You are to live by faith in God's words. Trust his words, not your own opinion. Trust his words, not your own ideas, not your feelings, not your emotions. Trust his words. You have them. You have them. Trust them and believe and live. Really live because you can, you know, now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, dear Lord, that some believe. We believe the word of God and we know that it's been accounted to us for righteousness. Father, I pray, dear Lord, if there are those here that don't know you and have not believed, I ask you, dear Father, your spirit would indeed illuminate their own hearts, dear Father, to the wonderful joy that they can have in the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they can finally have a firm foundation for their life, no longer being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and everything that they hear and and everything that they see in the media, but that they would have a firm foundation, that the word of God is that foundation, that they can now be assured not only eternal life, but a way of living, dear Lord, that has a foundation on a firm footing. I praise you, dear Lord, for this church. I thank you, dear Lord, that we believe we have the scriptures. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to go out, to share the word of God to a dying world, that we would live by faith in the word, And that you are the one, dear Lord, that has not only redeemed us, but you keep us. Pray, dear Lord, for the rest of this day, dear Lord. I pray for the fellowship that we have one with another. And I thank you, dear Lord, for your work within our lives. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.